Good evening, everyone. For tonight's program, we have an interview with a group of young activists from the Canberra Refugee Action Committee. They were arrested a couple of months ago, and we thought it was about time they had a chance to tell their side of the story. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, it is good to see you guys out of prison today. <laughs> good to be out. <laughs> My colleague Catherine and I, we wanted to get you all together again to give you a chance to debrief about your experience of being arrested and the court proceedings. Would you all like to introduce yourselves to the audience and tell us what the arrest was about and how you guys are feeling now? Um, I'm Dylan, I'm 29. Um, I'm a PhD student studying philosophy at the ANU and I work at the Academy of Social Sciences, an NGO. Um, but it just happens to also be at the ANU. Um, my name is Zoe, I'm 24. I'm working doing HR and marketing stuff. Um, I'm Larissa, 22, studying uh, teaching at UC. Um, and I'm Anna, I'm 23. I'm doing honours in sociology at ANU. And I think my employer would probably not like me to say where, <laughs> who they are. What inspired you to join the Refugee Action Committee and could you begin to elaborate on the day's events? I guess it's a really long story like to, to capture the whole thing, um, starting from the lead up to being involved with RAC and then the years of kind of like activism um, leading to like the Manus crisis and then our actions that day. So yeah, I don't know, I'm, I was involved with um, RAC since about 2015 um, and I guess the putting a lot of energy into it because I think that uh, the ref Australia's refugee policy is probably the most pressing issue um, for me right now in society, for things that we need to desperately change and improve. So that's why I was involved. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I learned quite a lot about other people's involvement um, and ongoing involvement with refugee um, and just human rights in general uh, during the court um, date because we of came together really quickly and then uh, <laughs> learned a lot about each other afterwards um, after the event and I think it seems like everyone has pretty personal stories about um, how they got involved and how they interacted with the news around the crisis at, um, back in November at, uh, on Manus Island so personally I, I've been involved I got involved um, with RAC through the Quakers um, who I've been involved with for quite a number of years um, in their youth program and went to a lot of rallies and uh, helped draft and sign a lot of letters and um, and over the years continually doing that and then sort of having it come to such a emotional and frightening head during the shutdown crisis sort of really drove me to think about uh, like what else, what other options there were to express myself and to uh, to be there and support um, the men that are being treated so terribly on Manus. Thanks, Larissa. Would one of you like to explain a little bit more about that crisis and the shutdown crisis, just so people can get an idea of what was going on and to give them some understanding of the fact that Manus is one of the offshore detention centres for people whom the Australian government deems to have illegally attempted to come to Australia? Effectively, the mandatory detention policy, which was started by Labor, a lot of people forget in 92, um, is what it sounds like. If you come to Australia seeking um, asylum, you're locked up basically 
in a prison, what is effectively a prison. He's, it's been at various places over the years. Kevin Rudd and other Labor politicians opened the Malaysia solution. Um, and there's been a whole bunch of iterations, including things like Christmas Island and stuff like that. But these days, obviously, it's in Nauru or Manus Island that refugees get sent. Um, the condition with the shutdown was effectively that the judicial system of Papua New Guinea ruled that these detention centres were illegal. They, were, they ran counter to the, the law of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started this process of shutting them down, um, which obviously the Australian government did not, um, they sort of didn't want to bar of it, so to sort of sidestep it and avoid a political crisis of some, like, magnitude. This is a big kind of vote, you know, kind of voting issue in certain parts, apparently, for, for conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to basically reset all the refugees into the Papua New Guinea community, but this is kind of massively dangerous. A lot of people don't realise. Of course, like, resettlement sounds much better than sitting in prison. It's kind of like on the surface of things, it sounds like it's a great idea, but um, it's it was very it's very dangerous there for refugees. The certain kind of elements of the Papua New Guinea community have attacked refugees in the past, including Navy Papua New Guinea's Navy. Mm. I can't remember the official name of it. Yeah, there was some Shot reports in, this yeah. week. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this thing that happened this week, where Navy where soldiers basically from Papua New Guinea's Navy got they claimed that they were kind of like acting under the influence of the Australian government in some way. I can't assess that. Claim, to be honest, no, but that was this good. is the same organisation that earlier in 2017 shot into um, the detention centres in Manus Island. Yeah, precisely. So it's kind of as much as fun and easy to say get out of prison and go live in Papua New Guinea. What are you too good mm. to live in Papua New Guinea? It's kind of hugely dangerous situation. Mm. Right? Um, so they because of that, yeah, no, they no. have no adequate medical facilities on um, yeah, yeah where they're trying to resettle them into the community as well. So that's obviously a big issue for men with, like, complex um, mental illnesses as well as, like, physical illnesses as well. So, yeah, continue, but that was another yeah, important yeah. thing. Yeah, that's right. So, hence, that's the crisis that drove you and um, your fellow activists to go and have a sit-in in the offices in Braddon? Yeah. That's the way it went? Okay. Uh, well, yeah, so just, like, a little bit more, like, um, because of this resettlement and the shutdown of the camps, the men were, you know, too afraid to leave and they kind of barricaded themselves into the old camp. They were stopped being provided food and water. Um, they they had their medications withdrawn. They they didn't have electricity, so they you know didn't have like mosquito um, bug bug kill things. I don't know what they're called. Um, but yeah, basically they yeah, were in this. Fever, yeah, they have yeah. It's like not mosquito. It's not like a mosquito bite. You will die yeah. if you're unlucky. So they're in these horrible conditions, shutting themselves into the camp because they're too scared to leave and the alternative places aren't even ready for them. And we were seeing, like, constant streams of updates. Personally, I mean, for me, I was seeing these men writing on Twitter about how terrified they were, about how they thought that they, you know, they would be dead soon, how they thought that the army was going to come in and shoot them all or, you know, their friends were going to die of starvation. And we were reading this nightly i think it was i think it was about three days um before we actually took our action but yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know i think zoe as well probably had this experience and, and larissa and dylan as well but i would be at home like reading twitter crying because it was so terrifying and distressing so yeah that's kind of the immediate distress which led me to to do this action i guess yeah, yeah. meanwhile we're talking to these people as well and like you see at 5 p.m a video of a soldier saying if you don't leave we're gonna come and rape you Right. Mm. And then, like, two hours later, we're talking to my messages saying they're scared for their lives. And 
And it's important to note too for people who are listening who might have different sort of opinions about, you know, how these situations are being handled by the Australian government. These are already traumatised human beings in these detention centres. So these are people who have witnessed stuff that, you know, quite a, a lot of the population here in Australia will have never and hopefully never come across. And so not only are they, you know, suffering the detention and they are legally seeking asylum you know and Dylan made that point very well so from there maybe let's move to the day of the arrest so so could you just set the scene for us you know how you got into the offices so we met at Veterans Park in the city at about 10 in the morning um, at about 9 in the morning or 10 to 9 um, there had been a group of people that I'd been talking to about doing this um, sit-in protest at the Department of Immigration because as I'm sure a lot of us and especially Anna already pointed out the fact that this crisis was had been really snowballing for the last week and there had been plenty of rallies and protests and letter writing and you know a lot of a lot of action and you know, trying to use civil society to give our voice to the government, which was just continuously ignored. And yeah, it got to the point where we decided we'd like to do something that would be an alternative method of getting our point across. So we met there with a group of people. I think there were maybe 20 of us um, with signs. And um, also it's important to note the action was also synchronised with other actions in Sydney and Newcastle on the same day. And some other people in our group had worked on putting together a press release and um, there was actually an article published in the New Matilda that day about the actions and the reasoning why. So, yeah, it's not just a kind of young radical thing that we did. It was all very planned and um, try, they're very organised. So from Veterans Park, we had a group of inside and outside people. We walked up Lonsdale Street towards the Department of Immigration and Border Protection in Braddon. And the doors opened into the main foyer. There was one security guard there. We just kind of walked past her. I don't think she really questioned anybody, really. And we just sat with our signs and our banners. And we were reading a special group statement, a kind of call and respond that had been prepared. And we also did a live Facebook feed to try and promote the action a little bit more, to try and get a little bit of awareness raised and so we were there probably for about an hour in the end maybe a little bit longer we got an official warning um after that i think we were given a little bit of time and then the manager again told us that uh, t- told the liaison the person we had nominated that they were going to call the police if we didn't leave and um we decided we were going to stay and continue our protest and shortly after that the police arrived and we were given notice from the police to move on and uh, we negotiated to have five minutes to talk amongst ourselves about who to check in with each other to see if we were still uh, to stay and I think when when the police did arrive a few of our group decided to leave that had been sitting inside and they went and continued protesting on the street. And then we were read our rights and the police, the seven of us that had stayed 
were arrested and walked out onto the street and patted down and put into cars and paddy wagons from my memory we were also left on the street for quite a while like not even being held or anything we're just kind of standing there i got my banner out and held it they're like you can't do that you've been arrested it's like well nothing's happening you're so disorganized so it was yeah so it was pretty interesting um the arrest was good we didn't we didn't resist or anything like that um there was a little bit of media, but I think probably what gets more attention with these kinds of things if you're, is if you're, you're carried out, and we didn't do that because that kind of increases a bit of the kind of legal risk. But, yeah, it was a really interesting little activist dynamic, which I hadn't really been part of before, sitting in the offices and talking amongst yourselves in weirdly strategic ways to kind of delay and pretend like, oh, yeah, I don't know what's going on. Can you explain it to me again? And Which section of are we violating right now? Yeah. <laughs> What's your name again? Sorry. Like, I don't care. But <laughs> yeah. So I guess then we were eventually put into paddy wagons. Some of us. So I was in one. It was disgusting. With Zoe, covered in blood, Marley, and it was really disturbing. Like it was yeah. a really strange experience being in this plastic box, which was extremely hot, but you had this fan blowing at you. So. It was just horrible and the walls had like blood stains on them and it was pretty unpleasant. There was no seat belts. There still is no seats in the back of paddy wagons. Yeah, and so of course that, you know, makes you think of the horrific things that happen in the back of paddy wagons to, you know, like um, indigenous people, um, which was just so emotionally overwhelming as well at the time. And we were driven to the police station and then we were kept in the paddy wagon for half an hour out you know, without being told what was happening, um, a policeman came over at some point and like shook the van to try and scare us as well. It was just, it was, yeah, it was pretty unpleasant. Yeah, that's quite disturbing considering too, you're not actually, you haven't committed any violent, violent crime. crime. Yeah. You know, you're, you're standing up for the rights of other people who can't speak up for themselves and that sort of treatment, it's, it's quite concerning. That's why we wanted to make sure you get a chance to talk about this. Larissa, just earlier on, um, before we started recording, you were talking about just that feeling of being inside the cells. Would you like to just take us through that bit again? I guess it's probably obvious that a lot of the people who do go through watch houses maybe um, and pretty have been put under a lot of stress. They might, uh, I think, um, maybe be under the influence of drugs or or whatever the case, but a lot of the people that I saw being walked around uh, from, like, transitioned from cells, or when I was first brought in, I was in a cell next to a man who had stripped all his clothes off because he had been pepper sprayed, and I could smell the pepper spray from where I was standing, and he was just um, sort of pacing his cell and, and in a lot of pain and very agitated. Yeah, he was really, really clearly really upset, and so that was sort of my first introduction to the cells, um, so that was upsetting. <laughs> um, and then I was processed and put into the uh, actual holding cell, yeah. And people, as they were being processed or being moved around, were walked past my cell. Um, again, a lot of them were just really clearly upset or disturbed by what they were going through. And there is this man who at one point was... Um, just screaming and shouting and really uh, upset and he started banging whatever against his head or hands or 
feet against the walls next to me and was just shouting for, it felt like a long time. Of course, there's no way to tell the time in there because it's just completely shut off from reality. And I'd, the guards wanted him to take his shoes off um, because you're not allowed to have shoes on in there because you just can't. <laughs> um, and he, they were just screaming at him. And um, at the time, I had been trying to get attention from the guards so that I could get a phone call because no one um I had told my family that I was going to the protest but I hadn't of course they didn't know I had been arrested at that point and I had been doing that trying to get attention for a while but after they the guards finished yelling at this man to take his shoes off and there was that interaction for ages it seemed like one of the guards came by to me and I, I asked him if I could have the call and this was like the second or third time I had asked and this guy said yes and he went and got me the phone. It's quite disturbing to be in there and to experience it. It was a very clear distinction. I know like we've talked about the fact that we didn't you know commit a violent crime or anything like that but there did seem to be a very big distinction at least in the way that the officers would talk to us between us and I guess like you know other inmates and so that kind of thing um they kind of there was a bit of a fluctuation between acting like oh you know you guys are I know like for the for the my group who we were actually after a while able to be in a joint cell together they moved us all into like a quite a large room they were like young girls like you shouldn't have to see this you shouldn't be here you guys are a waste of our time and so they would kind of at some points behave like that and then at other times it would be like a flick of a switch and all of a sudden they would be like very much more, I guess, playing power games, I thought. At one point, after they originally take you in, you're waiting in a cell and then they kind of check you in, they check your belongings in, they ask you to remove any like accessories, your shoes, you're only allowed to have the first layer of clothing on. So I think like all shoes and everything had to go. You weren't allowed to have any jumpers or anything like that. I think probably the reasoning behind that is so you can't damage your cell or self-harm. So I have a nose piercing and I couldn't take it out at that time. And they were like, well, do you think you're here for, like, do you think you're here for an easy reason? Or And then when I told them that I couldn't take out my nose ring, they thought, oh, well, that's a smart move, isn't it? I guess, like, that's a good view. Quick, get the big pliers. Like, stuff like that. So it was, yeah, yeah. So it was really interesting. There was a real, I guess, contrast between trying to be nice and almost buddy up to us to get information in a way. And then in next moment, like, giving us a little bit of maybe confidence or security. And then the next moment, saying something quite, like, aggressive or confronting and really just driving home the fact that, this is their world and, you know, you don't really, well, you have rights there, but you're nothing. You don't have any, you don't have any power there. And this is not a place where you can ask for a phone call or ask what the time is. And yeah, we really, our, in hindsight, I was actually shocked at the way that our rights weren't, I guess, um, made they didn't make us aware of our rights. So, you know, in the movies, they always say, oh, you get a phone call. But I had to ask multiple times because I had to call work and tell them, sorry, actually, I've been arrested. So that was also a big drama in my life after that. 
but yeah, the fact that after we'd been in the holding cell for a long time, I found out you could ask for reading material or those kinds of things. And um, yeah. we didn't find out that we were allowed to have food until like we'd been in there for five hours. And they hadn't offered you food or no, water? No, no food or water. And we were just like, oh, would you mind maybe giving us? And they're like, oh, well, if you're lucky, like I don't really have time for you, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, it was very much emphasised that we were a waste of time and that we'd really inconvenienced them. The fact that they didn't have enough holding cells for us, that they didn't even have, with all the vehicles that were going in at the same time, They that's why we were stuck in the paddy wagon for so long because they could only process so many people at a time. So obviously the Canberra police station that we went to was not fitted out for like our number which I was only seven Sorry, were you held at city we were held at the city so like the watch house and um but yeah so like to give them credit some of them did come back and give us like a few cups of tea and that kind of thing but that was after a very long time i think dylan was in there probably for the longest around nine hours yeah nine hours and five minutes yeah, dylan, do you to want to my, tell us according a bit to my about... dossier <laughs> tell us a bit about your experience because you were separated from the group because the girls were in one yep, area yep. yeah um, also larissa was separated i'm not sure yeah. why they separated larissa but there was larissa we were... separate and dylan separate and then five girls were able to be in the joint cell Right. Yeah. The reason That's was we came through first. Oh, we actually met in the paddy well, wagon or just yeah. before. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're just like hypothesizing why we were kept separate. We kind of figure it's because we were brought in together in first that we yeah. were separated from the rest of them. Where was I? Um, Sorry, your experience in the cell Yeah, yeah, cool. Any um, memorable moments. Memorable moments, yeah, yeah. Jeez, there's not really not much happening in there. I have to say my experience with it all was pretty good. The cops were fine. All of the tape. If you're listening, you did well. We were chatting to him in the car. He was good. That guy with the red beard who Larissa described that is actually a bit disturbing. That they have such contempt for life. I'm not impressed by that, I have to say. But on the whole, I mean, it's true that they didn't really read our rights or anything like that. Um, mm. Probably the disturbing thing for me was the fact that I was in there for so fucking long. It just yeah. felt like, and it just felt like so long. You have no concept of time. Yeah. Were you offered food or water? Warped. They brought me food at one point. Yeah. Um, how many um, hours before they offered you food or water? Some three or four hours, I suppose. Mm. I'm not really sure. I mean, the, the, that's a really disturbing thing. Probably the two things I didn't like is are these. One, if you're in there for that long, you just lose grip. Like you just you just can't grip reality. I was starting to think they'd forgotten about me and stuff mm. like that. No, I know that's crazy. Like anyone that's can see. That's not crazy. That's quite a standard response. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. But you know, like I know now that that couldn't be right. And if but when you're not talking to people and not, like there's nothing happening, nothing, there's no stimuli, no, no movement, you just, I just thought everything under the sun. Hey, it's a like, very good comment on um, solitary confinement. Oh, I have no doubt now. Well, as soon as I walked out, I realized it was nine hours. I was trying to time it. I think I thought it was about six and a half hours. Mm. And I think well, it was... Closer, closer in a way, but yeah, I mean, I have no doubt now that yeah. solitary confinement is some form of cruel and unusual punishment. It was bloody... Absolutely. Completely unpleasant. Absolutely difficult. After the first like four or five hours, that time stopped. Hey, oh my god! And just quickly, the second thing I didn't like was they constantly came in and said they'll be about you'll be out in an hour. They did that. Mm. The only four, I probably spoke to them three or four times. Mm. And the only time, <laughs> the only time I did actually speak to them, they came in to say you'll be out in a second, and then yeah. left for bloody three hours. Mm. Then came back to say the same thing and then left for another three hours. Mm. I mean, that galled me, to be honest, as you can tell by my yeah. by my, my <laughs> insult kind of little child's tone. But, I mean, jeez, a bit of respect. It's not like that. We shouldn't have been arrested in the first place. Yeah. You don't need to be bailed. As the judge pointed out, it's a finable, the maximum penalty is a fine. 
Yeah, yeah put right. people on bail if the maximum penalty is a fine. Yeah. The magistrate. She was, was actually, outraged. Yeah, she was pretty upset by that. She said outrageous. She said oh, that's so, outrageous. Okay, <laughs> so you're just talking about the magistrate now. Who, um, Zoe, do you want to tell us a little bit about, because the, the court proceedings were, when did that happen? So the final court proceedings, we hope, they still have a few more days to appeal if the Commonwealth wishes to. Fingers crossed they don't. Okay. <laughs> um, so we had our mitigation hearing last Tuesday and that was at the secondary hearing with the first one is what they call a mention where they summon you to court and you kind of give an indication of what you're going to plea in order that they can schedule you enough time for whatever the next proceedings now Mm -hmm. because we decided originally to plead guilty the facts were we, we were in that space. It's pretty hard to dispute trespass, especially when you have police records and a live Facebook video. So we thought may as well plead guilty to that one. Can I just ask you there, um, did you ever seek any legal representation? We actually were incredibly lucky. We had an amazing barrister who is actually a teacher at the ANU School of Law and he has his own practice. He usually practices in the Supreme Court. So actually our case was a little down from what his usual standards would be. But his name was Anthony Hopkins and he was absolutely amazing. So oh, friend. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shout out to Anthony Hopkins. Shout out to Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> Hopkins. Um, if you get arrested for trespass, you, you want Anthony Hopkins. If you get arrested for anything, you want Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> but like the important thing is, is that he was doing it pro bono. Oh, I don't know if that's absolutely. obvious because I was telling someone about it the other day and like, how much did you charge? I was like, ha ha ha. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You knew this for a seven and our inability to pay. Yeah. <laughs> and so he supported you through the process? Yeah. yeah we also had um, Michael O'Toole, a man who works at Legal Aid, um, offering solicitor, solicitor help as well. So mm-hmm. they were amazing all the way through are very thorough and supportive and just brilliant as well. The way that Anthony wanted us, well, I mean, advised us to argue the case, actually just, I, I can't think of a way it would have turned out better. It was a kind of an unusual way, which I'm sure someone else can expand on later. But so the first hearing was the mention and we indicated our guilty plea. So then... Last Tuesday, we all met back for the mitigation hearing, which is where the defence, which was our defence lawyer, Anthony Hopkins, and the Commonwealth lawyer, they are kind of just arguing over the sentencing in that case. So the Commonwealth prosecution were asking for a fine and conviction in this case. Their case was we had broken the law and... You know, it sets a little bit of a precedent that people can get away with trespass. So they wanted to give us uh, the maximum penalty um, because of deterrence. There, I don't know if there's been that many cases like of protesting in Canberra mm. so far. So I think they didn't want to set up a pretty, yeah, pretty lenient um, like precedent. They so want to make an example of you, well, shall we say? Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely, and it's. Um, in my mind, very clearly connected to the political context as well because we kind of got an indication while we were in the cell that, you know, they they really had no interest in arresting us. Um, everything that I'd heard from speaking to friends who had kind of 
done these kinds of actions before was that, oh, you guys will probably just be let off. Or, you know, even the magistrate said, why were you arrested and not just moved on? So I was expecting that it would be pretty easy going. And I know that, yeah, whatever you make of that. But I think that they've kind of had orders from on high saying, like, there have been um, an escalating amount of uh, these kinds of protests in response to the Manus crisis. Obviously, the government has no interest in um, sort of letting this happen and letting this issue get more airtime because, you know, it actually was really galvanising um, in getting everyday Australians to support refugees. So they didn't want anyone else hearing about it. So I think, yeah, I think they were like had instructions to um, be really, really harsh on refugee protesters, basically. So, yeah, I think that as well as just the general Canberra climate, I think it was very much to do with the political issue. So it appears that the end result is that there's no more, um, nothing more to happen to you guys after the event, uh, legally speaking? So in the end, the magistrate awarded us a non-conviction order, which means because we pled guilty to the charge, they're maintained, so we'll always have the charge of trespass. No. Charges were dropped. Mm. Were they? Yeah, completely dropped. And they're getting rid of our fingerprints. Oh my gosh. So you'll have no criminal I didn't know record. that. No criminal record. I thought, she, I thought she actually charged us with it then. No. No. Okay, well, obviously, I don't it's even know. It's understandable. It's kind of a confusing process. It was process very confusing. Try this on, besides. I mean, we're skipping ahead of what happened in court, but try this on. The judge was withering in her description of what the police did. She made she made no bones. She used the word outrageous when she She described. heavily criticised the police. Yeah, she just said, I can't understand why this would have happened. This is completely outrageous, don't you think? She was talking to the pro DPP prosecutor. Well, that's and not right. She and she agreed that's not... as well. The prosecutor yeah. said, yes, Your Honour, I agree. <laughs> for, a, for, a penalty, for a crime with a maximum penalty of a fine. Then it, after all this kind of carry on, and then she was emphatically dismissed it for not, you know, what felt like 10 reasons she gave. We all just got mailed penalties. We have to pay now. <laughs> After she said, do you understand what's happening? Charges have been dropped. You won't have to pay any fine, blah, blah, blah. Now we all have been sent this thing saying we oh, have to I cop up. I can show you right It's only $50, now. but I mean, talk about opaque processes. You were saying the legal proceedings are hard to understand. So yeah, I had no idea. Victim reparations or something, isn't it? Is that... Victim, what they yeah, said? The, yeah. oh. the victim is the Commonwealth government. Oh, yeah, oh, poor guy. <laughs> so is this part of a restorative justice thing? For who, or though? Who needs that? to be restored? I mean, yeah. the judge <laughs> said did this. did they name it as such? The magistrate said this in the actual um, hearing as well. Someone, um, the prosecutor, basically said this was an inconvenience to everyone involved. And the magistrate said, I've read the statement of facts here. If you mean that the 150 seconds that the rightful occupier of the building spent, walking downstairs and asking them to move on before walking back away is something that needs to be compensated for. I can take that into account. She was she was wow. quite clear. Shout out, you know, to Margaret Hunter, comrade Margaret Hunter. <laughs> I mean, she clearly did not think that there was someone who needed reparations. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't be so dismissive of the notion that some, there was a victim. Yeah. She basically said there was no victims. She accidentally, in fact, said the word trivial. The man's menu, the transcript would bear this out. She accidentally said it's trivial. Well, not trivial. The man no crime said. is trivial. Yeah. But I mean, read between the lines. Yeah. <laughs> Interpret that how you like. Yeah, so I've just got out the fine order that we just received, which I guess was unexpected to me. It was I totally mean, unexpected to me. Um, it's obviously not a huge sum. I was just kind of surprised to be getting more correspondence from court. 
Um, the court orders that the defendant is also required to pay victims financial assistance levy of $50 <laughs> under Section 82 of the Victims of Crime Financial Assistance. So, I don't know, maybe that lady was like, I do want $50 for my 150 seconds walking downstairs. I'm it's not just, sure. It's just outrageous. The judge decides what happens and then throws away all the orders and then we're free. And she's like, do you understand what happens? We're dismissing the charges and then walks away and is like, actually, maybe the person needs $350 to compensate them. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I, mean, I don't know. I still don't understand. I literally thought it was a mistake, to be honest. Um, another thing I really wanted to say which is the thing that stuck with me most about the situation. And I know between us, we all had varying experiences of being arrested and being held and incarcerated or whatever you want to call it. The thing that was most, I guess, sickening to me after the roller coaster ride that was the lead up to that week, Dylan and Anna talked a little bit about the kind of anxiety that I know a lot of people who were refugee right campaigners during that time were feeling with the daily escalation after that being arrested and then coming out of the entire experience knowing that we'd actually committed a crime we were criminals and we had still had so much better treatment than these people on Manus Island it made me sick to think we were still given dignity and food and we had rights when these people have not committed any crime, they have been persecuted in their own country. A lot of them have already been cleared to, to be true asylum seekers. And actually, the Australian government's behaviour is completely against all of their international obligations that they've signed. So no matter how bad our experience is, is even thinking about it now still makes me sick, thinking that we were still treated so much better than these poor men. And the pain that's being inflicted on them every day. We sat in Canberra Watch House, for Christ's sake, but thinking about the kind of conditions that have been, you know, likened to torture that these people live in every day. Yeah, even children, and not for nine hours, for coming up on yes. five years. With no chance and hope of, or indication of when they'll be out. They have no, nothing to look forward to. Yeah. The new facilities on Manus don't even have proper sewage. All of the, like, neighbouring farmers really hate this new centre that they're living in because the sewage is running onto their land. So they've actually blockaded the buildings to stop people going in and out. So don't tell me that's free. That's not resettlement. It's just another prison with even less facilities than the first one that had been just condemned by so many international bodies already. Um, did any of you, just to sort of um, finish up, anyone want to say anything about the transfers that are happening now between um, Manus and Nauru and the US? Um, have any of you been communicating with some of the people who have been moved across the pond? Okay. Oh, no, I was just going to say I saw, you know, uh, one of them on Twitter and I saw, like, some pictures and videos of his life, which is... Amazing. So where is the person going uh, to? He's gone to somewhere in America, but there I don't remember exactly which place. Um, but, yeah, so I was looking at that, and, and that's really fantastic. But the obviously the huge – there are so many big problems. The fact that Turnbull said there's no obligation to take anyone, let alone all of them. And the other really sad thing is is that, you know, his friends on Manus are so happy for him. 
and they have no idea what their future holds and you know it's in all likeliness they they won't ever have a chance to have the life that he's having and these are people who've been bonding under conditions that we can't even imagine like to to begin to imagine for five years and and they're just happy for their friends and yeah I so so sad we've come across a young man a young Hazara guy who is um, originally straight from Afghanistan and he has gone from Manus to Baltimore. Um, I won't mention his name for now, but um, he seems to be, um, as far as he's concerned, he thinks he's going to slowly settle in. It's just really cold <laughs> at the moment. Um, but uh, I don't know if anyone else saw a Dateline did um, the program on um, some uh, Sudanese person from Manus who's been settled in Missouri and um, just that whole thing of now having to deal with being a black man in America as well. So one of the first conversations he had with a group of Sudanese elders who'd been in, in Missouri for a while was they gave him the guide on what to do if a policeman tells you to stop. If you don't put your hands up, you will be shot without question. And the look on this man's face when these Sudanese elders were telling him this within, you know, his first sort of month in the US, it's indescribable. But thank you, guys. Does anyone else want to have another five cents worth before we tie up? It's been really good to see, and I'm, I'm really pleased that this is one of the opportunities you've had to debrief on what has happened to you. And you've got stories for your children as well. Yeah, I'll just say quickly, um, even though they've taken these a handful of refugees to America. It was only because there's this path dependency between governments and Malcolm Turnbull was forced to. And what did New Zealand take? 150 or something? Oh, yeah, it still hasn't even happened. I mean, these numbers are laughable, frankly. And we should. it's just really important, I guess, that we don't let our governments off the hook, even though we can kind of like point to these success stories. There's a political failure. There's still going to be this situation again. We might empty them all, but if we don't actually change the policy, there's just going to be more people there in the future. We're going to have the exact same situation later on. That's correct. I mean, um, Indonesia itself has, what would you say, a smile? How many asylum seekers would you say are, are throughout Indonesia at the moment? Some are in detention, some are in Cesarwa, where they're sort of free and able to at least attend some form of school. Some people say six to 10,000. More than 10,000 people, and those people have been told by the Australian government that there is no way into Australia, there's no pathway. Um, there was big protests in Jakarta yesterday or the day before with people who've had no... They've been recognised by UNHCR, but there is no indication as to, you know, where where are we going from here. And and I say, you know, at least Indonesia, you know, whatever its, its, its downsides are, it has stood up for people. They're just keeping these people here in these conditions, and it's not—it's—it's it's not for any economic reasons. Like people say, the reasons that they're scared to have more refugees here or whatever is because they're scared the jobs are going to be taken, or like you know, there's going to be too many people on the dole. But even if you do increase the intake and give them all access to Medicare and all of those kinds of things that a civilian would get that would actually still cost less than the current budget they're spending on these offshore detention centres. It's disgusting. It was half the UNHCR global budget, I think, that they'd spent on it. Yeah, $400,000 per person per year 
um, over $9.6 billion spent in the last four years. And we could, you know, we could actually go, bring everyone here, give them four, a $400,000 salary and they would be, you know, great. <laughs> but yeah. It's not a bad a idea. I like that idea. They start a company and employ me. <laughs> yeah, and it's some of the small towns in Australia that are collapsing because there is no one to keep their town running. We cannot pick our fruit and vegetables. That stuff is dying on the vine and rotting in the fields because we haven't got the workers who are willing to go out and do this kind of work. And then you have little small towns where they've brought a whole bunch of refugees in and that place is up and running. There are restaurants, small businesses, all kinds of things happening. And we know this. We've known this for years. And and our government knows it and none of us are really sure why they're taking the approach that they're taking these days, it's completely counterintuitive. I guess it just shows we just have to keep going. I know that I'm probably not going to get arrested again in a hurry, but that doesn't mean that there's not other things we can do. And there's no way, there's no way that we can just give up and let, let these kind of policies speak for us as a nation, because they don't represent me. They don't represent anyone in this room, at least hopefully they don't represent people listening today. Well, I've already been to, uh, I will be going to three different RAC meetings this week, <laughs> um, organising events. Um, Palm Sunday is coming up. So there's a lot of things still happening for people to get involved with. So if you are listening and you are feeling motivated, maybe that's something that you could come along to. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Anna. I just wanted to say, if you've got energy to put into stuff like this, I advise you against putting it into the political parties. A lot of people attempted to not go with the coalition and spend their time trying to convince people who are associated with Labor, and I just think this is a massive waste of time. We've done things like stand at town halls and try and convince Labor members. Every Labor member I've spoken to already agrees with what we're saying. All these all these kind of you know, small town big dogs, people like Katie Gallagher, already agree. She used to, in fact, be a campaigner for refugee rights. And now I saw her three months ago give a speech about how they're going to insist on mandatory detention. Labor is just this machine which sucks energy in and just basically kind of co-opt any progressive force. So don't waste your time and energy. If you do have time and energy for this, do things like basically join the campaign. I don't want to plug rack a group, you know, obvious conflict of interest, but these kinds of movements are the things that are going to actually give us some kind of political power, not useless bloody hacks like Labor. And yeah, as Anna said, 25th of March is Palm Sunday rally. It's a great thing to go to. There's invariably thousands of people. So it's a kind of, it's a good event to go to because it doesn't, not like you're getting arrested and like losing and spending all the kind of all the energy you actually have. You get to go and talk to people. It's a really, it's a really kind of great, yeah, exactly motivating thing. Um, and it's our big one for the year as well. So, you know, 25th of March, what is it, 1 p.m. Yeah. in possibly Garima this Garima. year? Garima Place, come along. And if you can go and if you want to volunteer and just hang out with people, if you feel like you're not one of the marchers, then go into the Mars office in the city near the Civic Library there. And volunteer your time if you can. There's a number of, yeah, companion house just there. Um, these are the places where you can, you know, go and meet and hang out and, you know, walk this walk with the people who are coming from such terrible situations. You have been listening to Subject ACT on 2XX People Powered Radio. Stay tuned for our next program. See ya.